ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello everybody and welcome to this, the latest show on the ESSR feature on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet Podcasting Network. I'm your host this week, Stephen Wilson, and for this week's show, we're going to be looking back at the career of a Hall of Famer, arguably one of the most loved wrestlers to ever grace a wrestling ring, not just by what he did actually in the ring, just as his general persona and just a very likeable guy. Yes, we're going to... Wait, no, sorry, we're not talking about Jackson Riker. Um, scroll back my notes. No, we're going to be talking about uh, Mrs Foley's baby boy himself, Mick Foley, talking about his full career, dedicated career that he did have over the course of the last few decades. Uh, I've got a fantastic panel, so they tell me, here in this week's show to talk about Mick Foley. But before I introduce them, just give you the usual bit of housekeeping for us at the end of the podcast. Uh, if this is the first time you are listening to us, please hit your subscribe button and get all our content whenever it comes out. You're on Spotify, iTunes, any podcasting network, we are on it. You can also find us on all forms of social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet. And we're not just a podcast, though. We have our content on YouTube, some great stuff, Quiz Showdown, the Book It Tournament, all on there. Just search for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet on uh, YouTube, and you can find everything that we do on that there. Now, on to my panel. I said it was a great panel, and it is, because we are ESSR's Three Faces of Foley. Of course, I'm the dude love, you know, because why the hell not? <laughs> uh, we've got our version of Cactus Jack, the absolute insane member of this trio, and the, the man who would just do pretty much anything. Uh, Andy Mitchell is here with us here. Andy, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? I don't know what that's supposed to mean, uh, <laughs> uh, Stephen, but uh, I'm glad to be on. a massive fan of Mick Foley. And that's a great podcast to be on. And again, I'm glad I'm the cactus chat. I've got the beard. I'm just lacking the hair. I'm like, uh, I'm like if the Rock and Sock actually had a connection, and I was their baby boy. <laughs> I've got his bald head and the beard from Mick Foley. So yeah, no, excited to be here. And of course, we've got to have our version of mankind. I wish he would have masked cover his face, but hey ho, we don't have that one. And he probably lives in a basement and he's absolutely deranged. It is Scott McLeod. <laughs> I talk about living in basements, but uh, I do prefer not to talk about my summer off of university. But I was having a nice day until I heard your awful patter, Stephen. My patter sounded a lot better in my head. And then I started speaking, and it's just like, oh, this is guff, this is guff. But run with it, run with it, you know, that's what I want to do. Uh, so yeah, we are here today, we're going to talk about the career of Mick Foley. Pretty much four decades Worth of Mick Foley when you look back on it. Uh, started all the way back in 1983. Uh, Mick was a very talented athlete. Uh, some people may find that hard given his style of wrestling, but he was a free sport athlete in high school, uh, competed in football, basketball, and lacrosse before he decided to get into wrestling. After he was at the Madison Square Garden show where he saw the now infamous uh, Jimmy Snooker do that dive off the steel cage 
one of the more iconic moments in the 80s, and he took up wrestling as a result of that. And he went on very early on to compete across the territories at that particular point in time before finding a home in the then Continental Wrestling Association, Universal Wrestling Federation, and then eventually the World Class Championship Wrestling, which was later become WCW, as Cactus Jack, one of the very beloved personas that he became well known for. Uh, obviously, that's maybe a bit ahead of when we probably got into seeing Mick Foley, but Andy, I'll go to you. Do you have any memories of this particular point in Mick Foley's career? Well, when he was Cactus Jack, that was before my time, so uh, I think he was doing the Captain Jack persona uh, before I was even a twinkle in my dad's eye. Uh, so, <laughs> no, but I do know about the, obviously he was famous for the death matches in Japan, he had uh, mental encounters with like Fader and Terry Funk and I know they're like, they're done matched. It's like they were on the, you know, the videotapes, the sort of people getting seen. It's like, oh, you need to watch this show. But I don't really know much. I do know when he done wrestling in uh, school, he, uh, one of the people on his uh, teammate was uh, Kevin, was it Kevin James from uh, the, the King of Queens? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a bit. It's an interesting one. <laughs> but no, but I know it was like he was famous for the death matches in Japan and stuff, and, and obviously he lost his ear in a match with Feder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott, I think he's, uh, his very early legacy, as Andy mentioned, was this whole deathmatch style of wrestling, which did make him a bit of a, a household name on the wrestling scene at that particular point in time. But also, as we will go further along, his timeline was inevitably what kind of led to his career being cut so short. Yeah, because I've read um, Foley's first book, Have a Nice Day, and it goes into a lot of his early career and everything and shows how desperate a wrestler like himself could be to like find work outside of the major companies like a WCW or the WWF before there was an ECW. And I think he talked about how he'd always had a high tolerance for, for pain. And as they got like further on in his career, as they started gaining you know, weight and everything, and that kind of like the, the extra weight and extra padding, I think as he put it, helped... Uh, take away some of the blow because he kept being known for doing that elbow drop to the outside as Cactus Jack and off back in those days there there was no mats out there so there's very little protection for him so I think it's one of the cases like once they started doing it in a, a few different promotions like being the guy who'll take like crazy bumps that, that's kind of became his niche almost accidentally mm-hmm. yeah and there's that kind of gif that we see very often of uh, when with Cactus Jack when he kind of gets rolled along the barrier and he kind of rolls onto one barrier onto the other barrier and then kind of straight onto flat his face. That was just oh. the, type, it's the type of bumps that many people would get told about and they'd be like, nah, I'm not doing that. But- no, the kind of thing, but the, he was doing stuff like that before he was a wrestler because I think there's the first video of him jumping off of his house and, uh, and the, the, the funny story of it, they've got it on video, is that the, the video that you see is actually the second tape because the first time they ever got recorded properly. So it was like he was doing all this stuff before he was even in the business. So it was like obviously he was willing to do that. And I think obviously he's a young man and he's like, nobody else is doing this. And it's just, yeah, again, he, he had to retire uh, multiple times quite early, but it's just insane. It's the whole, as well, flipping over the top rope and, you know, the way he would run into the steel steps as well. It was just unbelievable. Just the, just this is early on in his career. He's doing all this crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh- 
Scott, it's quite interesting. We're recording this show not long after the uh, the A and E Network series biography doc show on McFoley, one of many shows in that series that came out over the last few weeks, uh, was released, and there was a lot of stuff in that show that kind of documented a lot of things about Foley that wasn't as well known. One of the things that kind of stood out to me uh, that I didn't actually know that we may criticise this man for his takes on wrestling these days, but uh, Dave Meltzer was apparently a big part in a lot of Mick Foley's success, because while he was on the independence, he's working a lot of the smaller shows. Uh, Meltzer in the Observer said that Foley was as good an indie wrestler as anybody in the country, which led to him getting all these offers from the likes of uh, CWA and uh, WCW, which is uh, interesting, the, the sway that Meltzer had even back in the early 80s. Yeah, because... You know, obviously, places like the Observer were kind of almost negatively referred to by people in wrestling as like the dirt sheets, and you got the people who don't like people like Meltzer, like some of your your Eric Bischoff, who takes any opportunity to slag Dave Meltzer off on his podcast and things like that. But I think it goes to show back in the days that some of the bookers were kind of uh, looking for a kind of talent because a lot of these smaller promotions that mostly would have went to were kind of being on their last legs in the. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, as the WWF and WCW to an extent were kind of starting to monopolise wrestling. And so for Foley, likes of getting mentioned in The Observer or like through like tape trading, I think they were the best ways for him back in the day to get noticed because also these are the days before like social media and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you did mention that infamous angle, well not infamous, infamous, the famous feud he had with Vader uh, probably a few I think ahead of its time well not really ahead of its time but a few of the era type thing where you had two not exactly well Vader was a man ahead of his time he could move mm-hmm. like a bombing cruiserweight but he was about 500 or 400 odd pounds but uh, that match they had with the ear loss in Germany uh, the interesting thing about it was we mentioned Pope Foley how he would go through so much pain and do bumps nobody else would do but he wanted to take that ear loss angle and make it into this whole big, massive, year-long feud. Uh, and given the stuff that we may talk about later on that he put his body through, could you imagine some of the stuff that would have happened if he had a feud based on him losing his ear? I don't know. I, I reckon they probably wanted uh, Vader to lose something as well. Or, or, you know, like an ear versus mass match or something ridiculous. But it, it goes to show, like, early on, he always had a good set of, like, like he had good sort of business knowledge within the wrestling and uh, to do with like storylines and stuff because uh, again that's a great angle you lose your ear against someone it's like the ultimate kind of what am I going to do to beat this guy it would have been a it would have probably been talking about it like we're, talk, well, we're talking about it in hindsight like wait, if it actually happened I think it would have been a, one of those feuds it was like wow this is like in, in, insane mm-hmm. yeah and Scott the, the mind they kind of had for the, the business is quite ironic the fact that after his WCW run, he ends up in ECW, you know, the hardcore promotion. So you think a man like Foley, and like, yeah, he would be quite, you know, good as just a hardcore wrestler. But no, he just he, he turned things up a different level, and he had this whole gimmick at the time where he was essentially criticizing hardcore wrestling and decided I'm he's going to do a very technical slow wrestling type style. You know, that's just that's a different tact, and it's something that's quite. It's not something that really gets spoke about, I don't think, enough. Because we'd always known about him. You know, he had these matches with the big spots and everything. But he, he, he kind of could do that other style of things. Yeah. 
I think uh, it was smart for Foley to kind of set himself apart from everybody else in ECW because he'd been doing it in places like WCW, this sort of Cracked Jack hardcore gimmick where WCW in the early 90s was fairly family friendly. You know, you had the whole clean cut baby faces like your things of your sting and everything who's still going through his suffer gimmick at the time. Uh, and then you had people like Cracked Jack who were meant to be the total opposite of that. Then coming to ECW where the fans obviously would have known who he was given the uh, they probably would have seen his matches in Japan or the death matches. He had like the Terry Funk and everything like that. Uh, but then he's been doing this thing for a while. So it's already starting to take his toll on his body in 95, 96 when he goes to ECW. That's before some of his most notable bumps have even been taken in terms of like, the risks that he's done. And so in, technically there are some people who are trying to emulate him. So he thinks, I can't just do the same thing as everybody else. So, And I think he was also, also kind of smart around that he knew what would annoy the fans. He knew what they wanted. And by giving them the opposite, then he would, uh, he would really like make him the the top heel really at the time because it's not that Foley couldn't wrestle like a different style from the the deathmatch style. It's just that he knew that that's not what the fans really wanted, especially not the constant like wrestles and headlocks that he was giving them. And also, I think something about Foley that we bears talking about in this plug is that Foley's never really talked about in terms of the best talkers of all time. I think his ECW run especially shows that he should be considered like so the, the Kane Dewey promo or the uh, He's Hardcore promo where he's trying to sway Tommy Dreamer from the life of hardcore and tries to convince him to sign a contract with WCW. And so it was like the thing with the ear, like, oh, I can't put sunglasses on anymore. But that doesn't matter because I'm hardcore. Well, you mentioned that, Scott, because uh, 1995, uh, the Observer voted on best on interviews. And mm. if you look at the guys who both won it, before that and won it after it, you know. Uh, you've got the likes of Flair and uh, Roddy Piper would run it before him. Afterwards, you've got Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Chris Jericho, John Cena, CM Punk, Paul Heyman, you know, those guys. So for him, I mean, Foley would actually win it again in 2004, I think actually, mm. in 2006. So... And in that particular point, that's something, as Scott said, doesn't really, he doesn't get the credit he gets because as so many people just see him as this guy who takes, you know, puts his body through so much pain for entertainment. He's got a psychological factor to him, mm. which is, especially the fact that he got three gimmicks over, which we'll talk about later on. That's something special. I know. The thing is, though, it's like in ECW, he had a bit of a Jake the Snake Roberts kind of vibe to him with just that kind of promo stuff. And again, he's in a he's in a company called Extreme Championship Wrestling. And as Scott said, it's like he's famous for doing the death matches. And what a great heel to basically be like, I ain't doing that and I don't want to do that. And the people who want me to do that, basically, I don't want to. Yeah, it's just great material. I just kind of, I just kind of quickly want to say, I still remember one of the early Botchamania things I saw was when uh, Cactus Jack was uh, facing Sandman and it was like a bring your own weapons match and Mick Foley picked up a frying pan and smacked Sandman right in the head with it and you see Sandman's eyes roll back and just like, you didn't realise it was it was a real frying pan. Yeah. It's, uh, it's mental. He was not a fan from what I've read about of the Sandman. Really? Not a fan of him at all. No, he said he would he said he was always intoxicated during these matches. <laughs> maybe that frying perform. pan, maybe that frying pan to the head, maybe woke him up a wee bit. Actually, I shouldn't do concussion jokes. That's uh, <laughs> not 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 the right place for it. But no, yeah. But it's uh, again, as you were saying, it's like it was just that time where it's like there's a lot of stuff in that short period he's in ECW. Then people remembered the Dewey, uh, the Dewey 
I was going to say Dewey Cox, uh, Kane Dewey promo. <laughs> and But again, it's like there's so much more of it, and it's just that sort of lost history of in between them being in WCW and then going to WWF, WWE. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, there's, there's quite a few wrestlers who have like runs in ECW that people forget about. Like, And the best thing about it is going to be Austin's run. Because Austin, he went to ECW right before getting signed to the WWF in 96. His, his time there was mostly, was mostly promos. I think he was at a total of two matches in ECW. But he, those promos were some of the best of his career as well. And it's just interesting that like Foley you know, comes to ECW, he's doing this kind of game. And like, he's like bigging up WCW, trying to act like the sellout. And then gets further heat when, he, when it's announced that he is going to WWF. Where he's announces where people chant you sold out, in which they were do do for everybody who basically was announced that they were leaving the company. And I think it's smart again on him because he had a lot of resentment for WCW at the time. He goes in on WCW's booking at the time and the mismanagement and the things that frustrated him about the company. But he also knew that the hardcore fans of ECW weren't fans of of WCW either. And so again, he he was like, and he knew what he's kind of fans. It's always like. Like, WWE, we talk about, oh, they don't know what the fans want. It shows that the smartest of somebody like McFall, he knew what the fans wanted and didn't want. And so as a heel, he gave them exactly what they didn't want. Mm. Yeah, and it got to 1996, and that's the point where he goes to the WWF. Although apparently, from what Foley has said various times when he's done tours in the years since his retirement, it wasn't exactly a smooth acquisition process. Because... JR, who at the time running mm. talent relations, big fan of Foley, seen his work in WCW, thought this guy we want to bring in. Vince apparently had no plans, did not want him near the company, did not want his face to be seen. Well, so, I was going to say, I've heard didn't, when uh, Foley joined and he says, oh, so is Vince seen my tapes? And like Jim Ross is like, Vince doesn't know who you are. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't know, he doesn't have a clue, he doesn't watch anything as WWE. I think, like, I think he's he's fully talks about how Vince acted like he'd seen these tapes, or that like, someone had told him that Vince had seen them. But it, when they had their first conversation together, it became obvious like he has not seen my tapes. Like, and I think as Vince, his biggest thing, like he doesn't watch not like anything that's said WWE. He doesn't watch anything pop culture really. Did say WWE, and I think quite a few people in in, in WWE like that because I think it was either Vince or Stephanie. Apparently, were talking about. Uh, I think when Mike Awesome came in. Somebody was talking. About, oh, I've seen these matches in FMW, and one of them went. I think you're. I think you're misspelling. I think it's pronounced ECW. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, big thing that he had to Vince wanted to have a mask. Didn't want to see his mm. face, which in hindsight worked. You know, mm. uh, wanted up to be called Mason the Mutilator, which would have been horrible. <laughs> fully, fully acknowledges that himself. Is like I would not have lasted under this gimmick, but. He eventually managed to persuade Vince to go with the name Mankind. And he had all these vignettes that ran in the lead-up round about WrestleMania time that year. And Andy, some of this vignette work to debut Mankind, I think the Kernahan brothers have spoken about this in the past because mm. you know they are experts at this particular point in time in wrestling. Uh some of the best video work that WWE have done ever, even since then, we're talking 25 years later, how they were managed to make this man look, he looked like a deranged nut job. Mm. You know, he's in a bumming 
basement or something like that. He's got bloody wraps or something like that. He's pulling his own hair out in a boiler room. I mean, like, you're watching this one at this point, and you're actually like, this guy is... This guy petrifies me, you know? Yeah. Well, that was at a point where K-Fab was such a big thing too as well. You kind of believed it. Yeah. And again, it's like, how many people would have known that was Cactus Jack? Because obviously he's wearing the mask, and... Uh, I feel like as well like a lot of what went into those promos and the the vignettes and all that is like the horror films that kind of were popular at the time because not long before like Silence of the Lambs came out and the record that's what the the mask represents as well as like Leatherface and obviously the boiler rooms like Freddy Krueger and stuff so it's like obviously uh, I don't know how much uh, Mick Foley likes his pop culture uh, but you know how much did he buy into that and yeah it's like you're already he's creating this atmosphere because who is it he, he attacks on his debut, uh, none other than the Undertaker, and and, then, and that's it off to the races. It's like you've all got all this build up of who who's this guy, and this guy seems like creepy and crazy, and then yeah, he attacks the Undertaker. Yeah, Scott actually, Andy brought up a good point earlier on about the kind of this mankind, this early period of mankind. It's got real Jake the Snake vibes to it, you know, the kind of the mental psychology aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this version of uh, mankind. If you're only familiar with the, like the white shirt wearing man came from like 1998-99, then I think it's like a total like like night and day in terms of difference. I think obviously silly name is with whole Mason the mute layer, which is total like new generation thinking. There, the character was pretty much made for Mick Foley. You know this kind of crazy like maniac who lives in the shadows, who's kind of been shunned by everybody else, uh, and. I know Mick fully said like the first meeting he, he, he had with Vince when he heard the name Mason, he uh, he said he liked it because he didn't he wasn't sure if he wanted to rock the boat. But when it looked like they were getting serious about it, that's why he probably said like Vince, I had to be honest with you, that name is stupid. And basically he was trying to find the middle ground with Vince where he was going to do the gimmick. He just didn't want to be given that silly name, and like it fit in with what his style because obviously if he's crazy then he can still do the style of bumps that he'd been doing because he has no regard for his own stage or anybody else's. And like one of his like vignettes, there's a great few lines from him which sums up how good Mick Foley is as a talker. He said, like, you can't take my ear, that's already gone. My <laughs> teeth are already gone. He showed he's already lost a few teeth over the years. I said, my mind left me a long time ago. So there's nothing I've nothing left to lose. And uh, also then using the mandible claw was like kinda like how the fiend uses it now. Because for a while that became kind of a comedy move with like the sock being put over it as he does it. And I think he credits Jim Cornette for showing him uh, a wrestler whose name I can't remember years ago used to use it and he had to explain to Vince that this is really a se- how serious a nerve hold this is. And that kind of became his move. And I think it, it's surprising that it took so long for someone like a Bray Wyatt to bring that move back. Mm-hmm. I quite liked about this Mankind gimmick at the time. Uh, he'd come out to one music mm-hmm. and then he would leave to a completely different music. I think that's really clever. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, this is going to intimidate you as I come out, and afterwards it's like, yeah, blood, blood, blood. The only example I could think of that that happened recently was when at the start of Raw, Triple H would come out to King of Kings, but then at the end, when he'd come out for a match, it'd be the game, and it was just like, mm-hmm. okay. But yeah, but uh, no, but it's good, yeah, because it's the, I don't know what the, what is the, because I can't remember the name of the music it's used at the end, but it's, but it's just so nice and chill and calm and there's like the total opposite of his character. It's like, oh, wow, this is a bit weird. Mm-hmm. And it's, you mentioned Andy goes in, he attacks Undertaker, you know, right away, which is a big thing because Undertaker in 1996, you know, obviously 
he'd only debuted, he debuted in 1990, so he still wasn't, you know, the massive presence he was now. But at that point, he was still a big name in yeah. the company. So he doesn't just, like, you know, attack Undertaker. It gets the better of the Undertaker a lot of the exchanges. And this is kind of a feud that, as we'll talk about in a bit, it develops over the course of a couple of years. And they have so many firsts, you know, over this point in time. They have the first ever Buried Alive match. And also before that, they have the first ever Boiler Room Brawl, mm. which is a match I quite like watching in hindsight because I find it, it's just the fact that, obviously, technology had developed at that point in time. They've just got these wee tiny tellies at ringside. So for these poor buggers and a couple of rows back, they're kind of like, what's happening? <laughs> Can I see? It's dark as well. Yeah. Uh, good old WWE production back there. <laughs> it reminds you of the, those giant tellies like at school when the teacher said we're going to be watching a video this afternoon and then they go out and somebody wheels in the telly <laughs> and it's usually fucking massive that's what it was uh, like probably for the people like that and now we're going to watch the boiler room brawl yeah so I can't imagine it being the greatest live match to watch but I was going to say like you were saying about the because the whole thing with Undertaker was like he was doing the he was fighting the, the giant or the monster of the week and then Who's more like like Mick Foley's perfect for that role because he's he's mental and uh, he knows actually how to wrestle for a start. So it's like yeah, and then they just they just gelled and it's one of those things. It's like obviously you get Kane and Undertaker and uh, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, but you don't really hear a lot of like the great rivalry between Undertaker and and Mankind because everybody always knows about them getting thrown off the cell. But yeah, they had a, a fantastic feud and obviously it was Paul Bearer change sides to manage uh, Mankind. That's one of the best moments in SummerSlam history, albeit if it kind of feels a bit... Uh, the actual turn itself is so shocking you can't see it coming. But it's just kind of like the whole... The point of the action does the turns a wee bit like... He just kind of stands there it's just like... Oh, am I going to hit him? I find there, you know. <laughs> the whole thing is great. And... Uh, the... Buried alive, but Scotch as well. It's quite, it's amazing as well when you look back at something. It's a tactic that they've used many times. When they're taking, let's bring out all the heels to attack them and help them win. And you've got the, you know, Triple H, Goldust, John Bradshaw, Layfield trio assisting mankind for the win. Never would you ever see that again. Yeah, that was kind of the strategy with Undertaker. Like if he was going to lose, sometimes they'd have all the shenanigans like. Uh, the Warrior Rumble 94, where Yokozuna and about 20 other bloody heels basically killed The Undertaker and left him in a coffin at Rumble 94. Uh, and I think we did talk a little bit about uh, this Mick Foley rivalry uh, on The Undertaker, Undertaker's Greatest Rivals show, one of a series of, of shows we've done about The Undertaker. And I do think this rivalry with Mankind was like very necessary for Undertaker because his first year in the company, he's this big heel, nothing can hurt him wins the title for like a week and then sort of after his turn face and as soon as he turns face then he starts that whole monster of the week thing even fighting himself at one point because they were clearly running out of ideas but Mankind came in at this time and also Goldust he had a little bit of an on and off again feud with even challenging Goldust for the IC title which is bizarre to think about Undertaker being in the Intercontinental title scene but these were guys who were running a bit the same in terms of not bigger than Undertaker not stronger than Undertaker but they could out mind game Undertaker, if that's even a phrase. And, you know, the boiler room brawl match is interesting because it's a weird way you have to win it. You have to get out the boiler room and get an earn of him. 
Paul uh, Paul Bear, and it's funny as they're fighting through the uh, the backstage area. Uh, you got guys coming out the lock and like JBL and Stone Cold cheering on the Undertaker, like yeah, kick his ass, Taker. Waller and Brawl match really holds up. I don't know about the Buried Alive match. To be fair, I've watched that back, and it's just also the fact that in this particular one, you, you have to you don't even need to fully bury them. Like Mankind loses, but gets a little bit of dirt on him. But you'd forget that because. You have all these heels could come out because apparently they were running out of time. Think, okay, Taker needs to be sufficiently buried so that we can do the whole thing with his arm reaching out through the ground. And like we're running out of time, like fucking everybody, just dump it, just fucking dump the turn on the Undertaker. And yeah, one of the one of the best moments of this rivalry. I, I know Paul Bear kind of turning heel. It seems weird in hindsight, but I think it was a case of like Taker was getting beaten up week on week by like Goldust or Mankind, and so basically the idea of Paul Bear maybe thinking he was weak at the time and says. Uh, jump ship to Mankind. It's one of the best ones is when Mankind's challenging Shawn Michaels for the title, uh, when Bear opens the casket, and his reaction is seeing the Undertaker inside the casket, where he just says, like, oh! <laughs> uh, yeah. Paul Bear, that was a master of facial reaction. <laughs> mm. Some absolutely brilliant stuff he would do in that one. Uh, Andy, obviously, he moves past the Undertaker a few eventually. It's about, it's about a year run, but for a way to establish yourself, you know, a year battling with Undertaker is a great way to do it. Uh, over the next kind of year or so, we kind of see the development of the other characters of Mankind, and it kind of it follows off of a series of interviews that he does with, with Jim Ross, where Jim Ross delves into, you know, Foley as a person past the mm. Mankind character. I mean, this is 1997. It's not really, this is something that's quite unheard of. It kind of feels like you're breaking the, you know, the fourth wall in a way. But we kind of see a lot about, you know, the characters that inspired them. This is where we really first learn about Do Love, a character that Mick has came out and said that initially he didn't think he could play because he's not the, the, you know, the, the man of love and something like that. He didn't think he was viable in that character. I think when you kind of seen all these kind of these home videos he did and you seen his passion, it naturally started to develop into that whole transition yeah. into the mankind babyface everybody loved so much in the, the late nineties. Yeah, because I know it's like that was the thing that humanised him, and and that was kind of what made him, as you said, more of a popular babyface because it's shown you that uh, sort of like the deeper thing of who mankind is and i've seen like that it's like why why doesn't wwe do that more like today because that was so effective back in the 90s and you were saying we just sort of uh, uh skipped it but it was like he managed to in that first year get a title match against sean michaels and you know he had a great it's one of those things again it's like of all wrestlers who had a great like uh, debut year in wwf wwe it's like nobody really talks about mankind because it was good, like, it was a really good run he had. But yeah, like I said, it was like that sort of because isn't that where the whole uh, Foley's baby boy comes from? From those interviews with uh, Jr. I think it was. I should mention uh, to follow up on they said uh, the idea yeah, that he got that title shot so early in because I think it's because like the Vader feud suddenly got stopped after SummerSlam because Sean didn't like the way Vader wrestled. He thought he was a bit too stiff. <laughs> uh, which is weird because uh, <laughs> uh, Vader stiff. Wow. Mm, uh, yeah. 
fucking distracted me now. Uh, it is funny that Vader and Mankind would team up in the WWF, but they never actually got to recreate any of their matches together. They didn't have a, get to have like a prolonged feud against each other, which would have been interesting, interesting to see how that would have contrasted to their WCW matches. But yeah, a year into the company, and he gets this match. You know, I think it was apparently between him and, according to perspective, between him and Goldust to get that spot. And then he gets it. And I was watching actually a clip from that. I think it was an Inside the Roads interview that Foley did. We said they they orchestrate a spot where songs might leap over him, and they wanted it to look purposely like they'd botched it, because afterwards songs might slap him in the face. And so basically, after what happened with Vader at SummerSlam, where he basically yelled at him for not moving, like "Move, you piece of shit," and kicked him. Uh, they wanted everyone to feel everything think that Sean had basically lost his temper again, right in the middle of the match, which again shows the psychology of of Mick Foley. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, I think these interviews were definitely necessary because after that. He got into this team with Vader, but it didn't actually amount to anything other than a match at WrestleMania 13, which was kind of forgotten about. But uh, in these interviews, like I think Vince Russo, I think has to be credited partly for these interviews because he was a big proponent of the thing that he would do in the attitude of wrestlers wrestling under their own name. So like you brought him in as this crazed character over the last year, but let's get to know Mick Foley, the real guy behind the gimmick. Mm-hmm. And off the back of this, we kind of got two of the best moments of the Attitude Era with the the whole do love mankind discussion that leads to Cactus Jack coming back and defeating Triple H on Raw. Fantastic match, one of the best matches in Raw history. And of course, the three faces of Foley moment at the Royal Rumble 1998 mm. with uh, <laughs> Cactus Jack at one, Mankind at 16, and do love at 28. A moment in that Royal Rumble, and I don't think we're ever going to see repeated again. I can't think of MD other than maybe Bray Wyatt can maybe yeah. play that off. I know. I, I'll try to think. Uh, I can't even think of anything. Maybe Mr. McMahon. It could be Fence, the announcer, Fence, the CEO, and the genetic jackhammer, but obviously it doesn't. <laughs> It's not the free, but yeah, there's nobody else that could do that. He could have even done a fourth one where he just came out with himself. But uh, it was, it was again, it was in that the sort of that time where just wrestling was just so popular, and you know, and what a what a time to have done that. Because if you'd have done that before, or you've done it after, people would have probably thought it was stupid. Like, but the fact it's like Mick Foley's doing that, and the the free faces of Foley, it's just it's just amazing, and it is obviously still something that's talked about today. It's just this incredible sort of moment that happened in the Royal Rumble. Mm-hmm. And there's of course Scott, a very underrated match at that year's WrestleMania. It's a match I love to go back and watch because it's just so mental, but it, it's so funny at the same time. The uh, uh, the dumpster match against the UH Outlaws with uh, him and everyone's favourite retired wrestler Terry Funk. Oh, I do you mean Chainsaw Charlie? Charlie. Chainsaw <laughs> Charlie. Him and, um, him and Mick Foley have a great exchange at the start of that year's Royal Rumble as well. Yeah, because I know the whole thing is... Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm just feeling jumping in on Scott, but uh, I know the whole thing is they oh, had yeah. the match together, Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack, and then the UH Outlaws came out and put them in dumpsters, and that was how the dumpster match happened. But sorry, Scott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it made sense to pair Terry Funk with Mick Foley when they came in because you know they had their matches in Japan, Foley kind of looks up to, to Terry Funk and apparently Foley wanted to do a series of like death matches with Funk mm-hmm. when he came in which would culminate at WrestleMania and what basically would be kind of like similar to the Boyroom Brawling that you'd watch it on a TV screen basically a precursor to the cinematic matches we see today where they'd have a death match, uh, some, something to do with explosives apparently and it would be filmed at like Terry's ranch <laughs> somewhere in Texas 
and Vince basically decided, yeah, we're not going to do that, partly because of uh, they were getting extra media attention on them because Mike Tyson was coming in for Mania, and so they didn't want to see anything with like, overly violent or explosives involved. Uh, uh, I thought we can't it... have that, but we'll have we'll have have you get put into a dumpster and thrown off the stage, but. Uh-huh. I thought the reason for the not doing the fireworks was a fence's uh, ability to see in the future and see what happened to AEW. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, the massive explosion! No, nothing. No. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Um, I think it's an appropriate time to talk about King of the Ring 98. <laughs> sorry, sorry I, just, I couldn't resist going over that. Sorry. Uh, King of the Ring 98, arguably the night oh my God. that made him a mainstream star. Uh, it takes him getting flung 13 foot off of a cell. <laughs> and there's something we've talked about. We've talked about this a lot in the years that we've done this podcast, this match. Uh, it's, um, I, I personally thought it was one of the first wrestling shows I remember watching. Yeah. Uh, God help us. God help me as a result. Uh Oh, it's such a, a notable and memorable match in wrestling history. No, uh, as you're saying, it's like, what else can you say that hasn't been said? I I, I never had the uh, fortunate to see it when it happened. I think I saw it like later on, like a good few years later. But it's that match when people say, oh, wrestling's fake. And oh, isn't it just like pretend? I was like, all right, all right let's just sit and watch this match and you tell me how pretend it is. And it's like, did they just, did they just throw him off? The side of that, and it's like, yeah, he did. And it's like, Jesus, that's so. I was like, keep watching. <laughs> There's someone else going to come up, and it's just like, yeah, like it kind of. It's one of those things where it's like people say like wrestling isn't really like real and stuff like that, and nobody really gets injured. And you're like, yeah, no, this is an actual legit sort of over the top sort of example. But yeah, uh, it's a, it's just a fantastic match because obviously it's like Mick Foley knew it was like, how are we gonna how are we gonna talk. Uh, the taker in, in Shawn Michaels one and he knew it was like you, you need to go to the top of the cell and the problem is with that as soon as they've done that every other Hell in a Cell match is like people are just waiting for him to get out of the cell mm-hmm. because it's like and that's like what 20 that's 23 years ago that happened and people are still basing this on like like how mental a cell match can be yeah Scott I guess your brother Ross has talked about how the amount of that's like the bar of uh, big match spots and people keep trying to say like why don't you do this and it's just like that's never going to be talked again one for just how shocking it was and two health and safety oh yeah the current era <laughs> would not allow a man who got chucked off a cell obviously seriously concussed to wrestle it's just not allowed anymore yeah the closest where we're going to get to that again is like when Shane does his bumps off of the uh, the cell he's done uh, twice because like they keep trying to do like big spots and like they try to do one where they're both climbing up the cell and they both fight each other and they both flying back like uh, I think Drew did it with Seth one year and Drew, I think he also did it with Orton recently but like it, it just isn't the same like you can't portray that as shocking when years ago we, we still remember the Mick Foley bump and it's one of those moments where I think people who don't even watch wrestling anymore still remember when Mick Foley got thrown off the cell and I think it was a, an effort on Foley's part to try and differentiate uh, the, this match from the one before it, uh, yeah. and the spot where Terry Funk gets like the choke slam apparently was a uh, kind of improvised on the fly because uh, Foley <laughs> was legit like not silly and was taking the longer they should to get back up. What did he? So what he, what he ch- we got back choke slammed up. 
Chuck slammed him out his shoes. Yeah, I always remember the <laughs> Mick Foley quote because he was so concussed and he just looked down. He's like, "Whose shoes are these?" Like, he just, <laughs> it's just a again, just to go back on it. It's like it's it's a it's a planned match, but there's also the stuff that was unplanned just makes it more. The whole way of him getting chokes slammed through the cell, which wasn't supposed to happen, considering you could see the cell falling apart as they're walking, and then it's the whole. Oh, look at that smile, that sick smile. And the real story is it's just he knew his teeth had got knocked out, so he's trying to use his tongue to see where it was. And again, it's that whole thing. It's just this man could take punishment and enjoys it. And obviously the famous uh, JR and, and uh, King lines of, oh my God, he's dead. Like, And it's just like, like this match is just so mental. Just uh. scripted and unscripted reasons. It's just, it's like, <laughs> you just can't do it because like, the stuff that wasn't planned just made it more mental, and the stuff it was planned just made it. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those matches. You haven't seen it. You need to. You need to see yeah. it. It's one of the greatest wrestling matches, or great wrestling spectacles of all time. It's yeah. It's, it's interesting. interesting. Oh, there you go. Sorry, is it like they they played this for years in their whole like you tell you can't fake that like, you played this for years in their whole like don't try this at home video packages <laughs> to show like what the serious risks of wrestling can be. And like Vince, uh, sorry, JR and King really sell. Like JR, especially, like, JR actually was a genuine concern at his points when he yelled, Will somebody stop the death match <laughs> after the second bump? Because I think they were planning on it like giving way slowly and he'd roll in, hopefully, cushion some of the impact. But not only did it give way, but there was a chair on that particular oh, area yeah. of the cell. So the chair smacks him right in the face, and that's partly what concusses him, like with a chair, like with no protection, not even knowing that it's coming, with no way to protect him. So and, and do you know what the messed up part about that thing is that nobody ever talks about? Like later on, he runs out to to, to help Kane. And, oh, I know uh, he's absolutely. And it's like he's just like, mind. where am I? Because <laughs> you can't. I, I, I like. I like Kane was, said yeah, in his book. Kane said in his book, like because they randomly incorporate the cell into that match because they know like we can't top that, and like he and Austin were apparently sitting back to you thinking we're supposed to go out and follow that. How the hell are we going to yeah. do that? And. I think the thing that really has to be said about Foley in here is that he both like legitimised and ruined the Hell in a Cell stipulation at the same time. Yeah. And that he, he forever made you the, the, the Cell synonymous with himself. And so people will never forget this concept of Hell in a Cell. But they'll also be hard for anybody to do anything that insane in Hell in a Cell again that won't that, be compared to Foley uh, going next, up to Cell. Well, the next proper Hell in a Cell match wasn't until No Way Out 2001. And it's sort of that's and obviously it's like Mick Foley's back in it. I was just going to quickly say as well. I remember like the there's a story where he's talking to Undertaker and uh, Mick turns to him and goes, "Oh, did we use the the thumbtacks in the match?" And literally like he gets him to look in the mirror and is like, "Look at your face, Mick." And it's just like all the thumbtacks because <laughs> like, he was he was just he was just that he's, he was that concussed. He just can't remember most of the match. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to watch it back a few times before he remembered it because like as soon as it happened, he had no memory of it. Obviously, you know, you shouldn't really have to chuck yourself 13 foot off of a structure to make yourself a star. But he inadvertently does make himself a star after this. And I think, this might be a controversial statement, but I'm going to say, I think he has one of the best 18 months runs as a wrestler. Oh, yeah. Following this one, because he has all the stuff with the establishment of the goofy mankind character with the Mr. Soko stuff, that scene in the hospital with Vince is absolutely gold, you know that that whole stuff with Vince, you know and the only thing that tops the Soko moment is uh, Austin whacking him with the bedpan 
That's <laughs> so class. Um, I'll take it from here, nurse. <laughs> you've got the. And you got. You had Vince yelling the next week, like, Austin, you violated me. Yeah. <laughs> We've got the moments in the early 1999 where he puts the butts on the seat. Another moment we've talked about loads on this podcast. It's, you know, the, it's just such a memorable moment when he wins the world title and Tony Schiavone, you know, he's, he's doing his best in the current era of AEW to make, off for that, make up for that mistake, but it's great. It leads on to the less so, you know, memorable moment of the I Quit match with The Rock at the Royal Rumble, mm. where he takes, again, an unnecessary amount of punishment, but Scott, it's something that it's it's a it's see watching it knowing what we know now about concussions. Such a nasty uh, show, uh, moment to watch that one. Because, like, I think the thing with Mick uh, that really affected him long term, obviously, he'd already done significant damage to his body in the years before the Hell in a Cell match. But the fact that he did that not only went out to help in the main event later on, but he continued wrestling in the weeks following. He was the main event of the following pay per view team with Kane against Austin and Taker. Like he didn't take any like time, significant time off to heal after that, which I think just ultimately cut his career a bit shorter because obviously yeah. in a few years he'll just be coming back for occasional matches and like, also that and plus the hit the No Way Out match, like not the way a Warrior Rumble match where he keeps getting the unprotected chair shots. Like it didn't really help either, and also the gruesomeness of that was really catching on beyond the mat and didn't really do wrestling much favour at the same time. And I think part of the reason for introducing Sokko and like being the more goofy side of mankind was so he could do a lot more skits because, you know, Raw at that time was more about segments rather than matches. And so he could do a lot of this outside of the ring stuff to help prolong his, his time in the company. But the issue at the same time was when he was wrestling, he was still taking a, these risks, mm. a lot of which were unnecessary because I think he had to live up to at a certain point, he realised, like, I'm known as the guy who'll take these risks, so I have to take them, otherwise people won't think of me in the same way anymore. Yeah, definitely. He doesn't need to take the risk at the Royal Rumble, you know, because he's... Mm-hmm. It's already a big match, but he has all this back and forward, and then we get the iconic uh, tag team, Andy with himself, and the people's champ, The Rock. Oof, the Rock. A, a great example of something that really, really should not have worked. Yeah, but it did. It was their absolute treat. Yeah, considering it's like the start of that year, they have the most brutal matches, and uh, I don't know if uh, you've seen Beyond the Map, but that focuses on the, the chair shots to the face. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't seen Beyond the Map, it's what well, it's a great. I, it was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is, but it's hell of a watch, and it goes into that. But yeah, to go from that, and it's obviously the Rock's a face, Mankind's a face. The Mankind's basically like let's become a tag team the rocks like, I don't want to tag with you like you're you'd look at the state of you kind of thing and uh he slowly uh, but surely convinces them into becoming the rock and sock connection and uh they won a f- uh, quite a few uh tag team champions and it's just this random thing that probably wasn't planned like long run but it just worked it was that lightning in the bottle which led to uh this is your life with the rock oh that's that see looking back at it that's such a shit segment it's oh, so yeah, bad. It's, it's so, so bad. But, but I still yeah. say to people when someone annoys me, I'll be like, Poontang your ass out of here. <laughs> but the Rock didn't get any Poontang pie, you know, which is... I don't <laughs> think he'll be saying now in his uh, Seven Bucks promo crap, he says when he's <laughs> talking about relatable, how relatable he is to everyone. Yeah. Sorry, I've just gone off tangent. <laughs> so, so, 
Scott, we talk about uh, unnecessary bumps he takes. One really memorable one during this point in the Rock and Sock connection was the Buried Alive match that took place on SmackDown between them and Undertaker and Big Show. Oh, what a match. Where uh, <laughs> Big, Big Show literally he just throws him <laughs> into, the gra- into the grave. 25 foot apart it was from the stage <laughs> to the... I don't know again. It's an episode of SmackDown in 1999. <laughs> Why are you taking a bump like that? But it's that's a match on SmackDown. It's so bad in hindsight. <laughs> but I love it. You know, Kane, Kane makes a guest appearance, chases Stephanie McMahon down the hall. Is it Stephanie McMahon and chases down the hall? Chases China, sorry. Chases China down the hall. It's got everything in it. Stone Cold returns. What a, what a segment. <laughs> you, I mean, you can't fault the accuracy because he throws him from the stage, pounces oh, yeah. on the tip around the grave and then just rolls in. But like, again, the whole thing of you being a tag team at this point, Mick, it should be that uh, you should be like, taking some of the burden off yourself, not having to take these risks, but somehow he's still, I think maybe he was trying to make the big show, give out like, a key spot to the big show and make him look good. And so maybe it was his selflessness kind of getting in the, the way of it. Like, not thinking about the risk himself, because after that he would think about winding down. A, f- a few of my favourite things of this run uh, is like, Foley claims that uh, obviously he was angry with The Rock for getting a bit too ahead of himself and getting too into the chair shot because he hit way more than he should have. Like that, plus the fact that the Rock's all because his character, he would try and like no sell everything funny that Mick Foley did as as mankind, which was part of their dynamic. But that him not really giving him anything in the segments, plus the chair shot, he said he had a lot of animosity for the Rock for about a year or so. But they eventually also worked it out, and they're yeah. now friends again. Uh, I remember that like part of the thing with the Rock basically not caring about Mick is that Mick got beat up backstage. He's being attended to. Rock just wanders by on the way to his match, and Foley goes, "Hey, Rock." You go out there and win one for the Micker. And the Rock's is like, who the hell's the Micker? And oh, just walks off. And there's there's <laughs> some great backstage segments. I think there's one where it's like, Mick's talking to the Rock, and the Rock like, sounds like he's been caring, but it turns out the Rock's just on the phone to someone, and he doesn't he doesn't know what he doesn't know what mankind saying. He's like, like it's just ridiculous. Like uh, some of the greatest promos, uh, just like, and again, they weren't even together that long. What was that a few months? Not even. Yeah, like August to like. I believe one of their final matches properly as a team of that proper run because uh, I know they'd have like, another match years later, I mean, in 20, I think Armageddon 99, they team together and now they're kind of associated after, but they're not officially the, the Rock and Salt it's like August to like December on and off because there's that period where Foley thinks the Rock threw his book in the trash but really it was Al Snow, was Al Snow yeah. yeah, and like I love that Mick got a few months out of like his whole thing being him coming out every week talking about his book one prolonged advert for Foley's like book, but he was so loved that he got away with it, and people like bought into it. And also, it became a bestseller, even though apparently critics at the time refused to uh, to review it because it was a book written by a wrestler. But again, talk about Foley as great as a promo when he thinks the Rock's throwing it in the trash. Obviously, he let go of any, every insult the Rock threw at him. They're a team. This was his boiling point, and he properly ripped into the Rock like few people did at the time. He even called them Dwayne. As well, which I don't think anybody had done. Like, listen to me, Dwayne, you self-centered son of a bitch. You grow up. And he just walks out. Because, like, nobody really got the last word in on The Rock at that mm. point, but fully did on that night. Yeah. Uh, this next bit, I'm going to kind of combine with another part of his later career, because I think it kind of gets on the how good he was, in a way as well, putting over the up-and-coming stars. I'm going to combine his feuds with Triple H in the early 2000s. 
with his 2003-2004 feud with Randy Orton, as they're both very, very similar. Now, um, Andy, I'll go back to you on this one because you're kind of, both me and you both kind of have similar areas of where we really get into wrestling at this point in time. And yeah. I think the Royal Rumble and No Way Out series of matches with Foley, it's, oh, with Triple H, sorry, it's brilliant, brilliant, you know, storytelling. Yeah. Brilliant matches, brilliant psychology to it. Triple H looks like an absolute star off of it. And Mix able to go off into the sunset for a month. But that's about that. Yeah. Uh, two brilliant, brilliant wrestling matches at a point where wrestling's at its peak. Well, the thing is, though, because Triple H won his first title from Mankind. And obviously nobody really... It's sort of such a forgotten about like first title victory. And it was that it was the whole build up to the Royal Rumble where he's like, You're not facing mankind, you're facing Cactus Jack. And then yeah, it just it it, it made Triple H who he is today. because before he was just he was the guy from DX. He was the guy that was always with someone. He was he always had like help and again that storyline with him and Fence and Obviously, because they had the hardcore match, but it's against Finn, so it was just laughable. But yeah, against Man, I mean, against Cactus Jack. Sorry, is like it just took it to another. I remember I was one of the first pay-per-views I think I ever watched live because that was back when it was on Channel Four. Uh, the debut, the debut Channel Four debut, one, and, and it was like I think me, I think I was eleven, and a few people in my school year, we all fell in love with wrestling, and we all fell in love with uh, Mick Foley because uh, we didn't really know much about him before that and it was just what the hell is it this is this is a, amazing and I think oh, uh, along with that match at the Royal Rumble will, as well as Mae Young flashing on TV is the reason another reason why Channel 4 didn't want to really continue on because they didn't realise that wrestling could be that violent and it's like why don't you watch the product before you do it but then after the Royal Rumble obviously it's the build up to the uh, it's the build up to the retirement match for Trip, which is like I want your contract. Uh, you get to pick the. I can't remember who is it. Is it he tells him to pick the match first, or he says I want you to retire if you? So he goes, yeah, but as long as it's in hell. And I, said, I don't know. I just remember the the build up because it's not just it's Cactus Jack. It's just selling the this is hell in a cell. This match is mental. It's like look what happened in the last hell in a cell when Trip, which has never been in a hell in a cell. It's like how. Like, how is he going to survive? And it was that going into it, you're like, this could go either way. Mm-hmm. It was one of them rare occasions where it's like you didn't know who was going to win. Like, it could have been Triple H, it could have been Mick Foley, it could have been Cactus Jack, but yeah, it was a hell of a build up and it's a hell of a match. Uh-huh. And no pun Scott, intended. <laughs> and uh, Scott, before I went back and looked back on this in preparation for this show, I didn't realize just how much striking similarities there were between that kind of feud and his win with Randy Orton. Which Randy Orton at this point in time in two thousand and three is raw as raw as then, you know. No offense to me. He's a he's a great athlete, but he's still not the finished package. But I think being on that spotlight with Foley throughout this whole time, it just cements him. And I think these two feuds are probably the two best of Foley's career, I'd say. And that's quite a high standard considering they had that massive two year feud with the Undertaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Foley put everything into these feuds because uh, both times he didn't really know how much uh, time he had left as a wrestler because he talked about not he never wanted to come back for WrestleMania 2000. He fully intended when he did the retirement for him and him and uh, Triple H in that match at No Way Out. He wanted to retire, so obviously he wanted to go on high and make uh, Triple H a star at the same time. 
obviously he was disappointed with coming back for uh, 2000, May 2000, and then I don't think he was that pleased with the May 20 match. And so he like he, he had two like his last couple of matches were really like not really underwhelming. So when he had the match with Orton at, the, at Backlash, I think he thought like, okay, I'm gonna make him a star, but also go out on something I can be proud of. And it just goes to show like how good Mick Foley is. Like they've got these people who nowadays in wrestling are used to put other people over, but sometimes it comes at their own risk of their own credibility because you know all oh, they're just gonna lose. But Foley can really suck you into thinking maybe there's a chance that Foley will get the win because again I think the backlash matches for the Intercontinental title so yeah, Foley yeah. is another guy you don't think of as challenging for the Intercontinental title because that kind of gets slipped past the side a little and you I don't think, think he's ever won it has he? No oh. and like the RC title is almost secondary to the whole like personal view like Warren spit his face kicked him down the stairs Foley comes back at the Royal Rumble 2004 to beat up Foley but to beat up Orton and everything like that, and you go. Let's say everybody remembers the the spot. Warren goes for the RKO and gets flung into the uh, attacks. And I think it's one of the spots that really makes like Randy Orton. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think also Triple H. His thing in like the two thousands was again to play in the whole cerebral assassin that he was vicious. Like when he got into like a stipulation that had no DQ, which he wasn't often, that he would do anything to his opponent, inflict any amount of damage that he needed to. And I think that started with Foley because like. He said he'd never been in Hell in a Cell before, and they're picking up like but Foley has, and we know what Foley can do inside Hell in a Cell. But then after that, Hell in a Cell almost kind of became Triple H's match for a while because mm-hmm. he wouldn't lose a one-on-one Cell match until like 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two fantastic feuds and two brilliant, you know, two brilliant hardcore matches and a great Hell in a Cell match in there. I was just going to quickly say it's like yeah, like it legitimised the legend killer status of Randy Orton because before it was yeah, he'd, he'd like RKO a few legends and stuff, but it was going through that match and with uh, Mick Foley, I think really established him as the the next the newcomer, and then what was it shortly afterwards he wins his first world title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like two thousand four, pretty much is at least the first half of it up until he loses to Triple H Unforgiven is pretty much Orton's year. Because he gets a good show in the Rumble before Foley comes in. Yeah, he, I think he pins Foley in the match at May 20 and then beats him again at Backlash. Yeah, yeah he does, yeah. Yeah, he beats it, yeah. Because uh, Foley gets the uh, Mankind out in the RKO out of nowhere. Yeah. Which was the yeah, first RKO out of nowhere I've ever seen. Because uh, like, Rock's, Rock's basically back to promote movies, so like, the Rock's not taking the fucking pin. Uh, not at Mania. Uh, and then he has a great match with Shelton at Bad Blood and then he has a great match with Edge. Not quite the greatest match ever that would come uh, about 15 years later uh, at a backlash and then obviously wins the world title so pretty much yeah like like Orton went from strength to strength and a large part thanks to Foley yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so between that uh, retirement uh, set, uh, match at No Way Out 2000 and him eventually leaving WWE and signing for TNA he had a lot of um, there's a lot of moments in there that I'll briefly touch upon. Not massive moments, but still moments that need to be discussed. Uh, as Scott mentioned, he was in the WrestleMania 2000 match as a replacement for Chris Jericho, who was on the poster in the match. But he is accompanied by Linda McMahon, you know, because you know, that works out. Uh, he served as a storyline commissioner in WWF at the time mm. for most of the year mm. 2000. Uh, before he was kicked off by the McMahons, you know, because it's the McMahons. He served 
as the special guest referee for the greatest match in WrestleMania history between Vince and Shane McMahon. Uh, played a big, massive part in the pop of the century for Linda in that particular uh, match. He made sporadic appearances on TV throughout that year as well, including at one point introducing uh, Minnesota Governor Jesse Nicole Ventura. <laughs> and serving as again as a special guest referee at that year's Invasion pay-per-view for the Earl Hebner-Nick Patrick match, <laughs> as well as the tag team brand panties match between Lita and Trish and Stacey and Tony Wilson. Uh, I think they try and make out that Foley only did, in Kayfabe, Foley only did the Hebner-Patrick match if it also meant he could do this. <laughs> so yeah, they, they painted the most likeable guy in the company as one of the biggest pairs, like a Jerry Lawler level pair. <laughs> he had a very brief spell between 2004 and 2005 at Ring of Honor, uh, feuding mm. with uh, Ricky Steamboat as well as Samoa Joe uh, and CM Punk. It's something I didn't really realise until you know the last couple of weeks. So big credit for the work he did in Ring of Honor at that particular time. Uh, he again served as a guest referee. Uh, for the Triple H Kevin Nash match, Hell in a Cell match at Bad Blood 2003, he had the feud with Edge between 2005 and 2006. It's led to the match at WrestleMania 22, one of the most underrated WrestleMania matches of all time, where he takes another crazy bump through the flaming table. He then sides with uh, Edge and Lita. And a feud against East, the ECW around about the time ECW was coming back before uh, engaging in a re- feud based on real life animosity with Ric Flair, uh, based on stuff that was in his documentary. Uh, also joins the Vince McMahon Kiss My Ass Club uh, <laughs> after Vince threatened to fire Molina. Uh, <laughs> 2007 comes and he gets a WWE title match where he is part of a five-way match at that year's vengeance between then-champion John Cena, Randy Orton, King Booker, and current WWE champion Bobby Lashley. Do you know what? Uh, I was actually hoping that Mick Foley... I was thinking Mick Foley could have won that match. As Scott was saying, he's got that thing about him, you think he's got a chance. <laughs> I mean, actually, looking back at it, Bobby Lashley is more the odd one out than, than uh, Foley, because I think at the time they were bigging up Classic Night of Champions as a celebration of the history of the championship belts and WWE and everything. And so I think all the other guys, except for Lashley, were former champions. But I think they were hoping Lashley would be a future champion. It took him long enough to get there. Uh, but he had to have one of the greatest TNA World title reigns first to check out our other show on that one. But so, like, he seems like the odd one out there. But yeah, fully coming in, I think fully for him. He would have happily went out on that Mania 22 match because he said in that WWE duel like he didn't feel like he'd had a good WrestleMania match, like not a legendary one. And I think that match with Edge probably match of the night for that Mania. Then it's he a, kept trying to get brought back in. Mm. He's like oh, he's like the match. Godfather. Every time he's out, every time he's out, uh, they pull him back in. You know they want to legitimize ECW, bring him in for a short spell. I, I do can't love... remember the Godfather saying that. I thought it was on about that whole train. <laughs> Pretty, or maybe Sorry. one of his other gimmicks, maybe with Papa <laughs> Shango. But uh, one of the few good moments of his feud with Folk with uh, Flair is that he's doing an interview. I think he's weirdly plays the heel at points in this feud, but he uh, he's re- got the, uh, Flair's book and he says to Grissom, I'd like to read you a passage from Flair's novel 
Uh, and he goes, actually, Mick, I think it's an autobiography. He goes, no, Todd, because an autobiography contains facts, which this does not. Ah, oh, some, you know, belting, belting insults going there. And uh, one of his final matches in that particular run in WWE, he teamed up with Hornswoggle to qualify for the Royal Rumble in January 2008 by defeating the Highlanders. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Highlanders. Everybody remembers them. them. There we go. And Get him on the podcast. But, probably not doing anything. <laughs> later that year, he makes a triumphant return as an on-screen talent, not in WWE, no, in TNA. A run over the course of nearly three years that Scott McLeod looks back on very fondly on past podcasts, in particular Lockdown 2009, where he defeats Sting to win the TNA World Championship. Take it away, Honestly, Scott. I, honestly, I can't think, even think what the hell they were thinking with this. I mean, come on to fuck. I mean, yeah, bring him in as an on-screen role because, you know, we barely even spoke about his uh, commissioner role because, like, he spent, like, an hour easily talking about the funniest moments from that run. Like, have him in a role like that or as, like, an on-screen authority figure or something like that. But don't, if you're going to put him in matches, do what WWE did and, like, have him put somebody over. Like, he puts... Because he wins the title from Sting, has that weird ultimate sacrifice match where the title's technically on the line, but only if you pin him. And Kurt Ang and Sting wins it, but doesn't feel the need to win his belt back from from Foley. And then Kurt Angle, that young whippersnapper, gets put over by Foley twice to get the belt back. And then, yeah, he hangs around. He has that feud with Abyss, which he should have been doing all along. He has a feud with Kevin Nash with a Legends title, where Foley's like, I'm all about the all about the business and you're all about money and everything. Basically everything you assume Kevin Ash is about. And then yeah, like three fucking years. And they should have gotten everything they could out of Foley. And yet other than his title win and that match with the best, I could not tell you one other fucking thing he did in his TNA run. Ah, it was um I think he was involved in that ECW stuff, the E V two thing. Oh yeah, well oh, good 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 on you, Mick. You're really worthwhile on that. Uh, Andy, I'm not really sure what your TNA knowledge is like. Do you know much about his run at this point? I just know he was there. I just, that was it. <laughs> I was like, I just never watched TNA. I never, I never got behind it. I was never a fan. I apologise on TNA fans, but yeah, yeah. I just knew he was there. Uh, did he have another feud with Ric Flair? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think I actually wrestled Ric Flair. Yeah, and. I think it was more sad for Flair than anything else because Flair had, had that big in retirement with Sean like a year or so earlier. Mm-hmm. Ah, they messed up Flair stuff really, really badly. Uh, what, what else did he do in TNA? Let's see. In, in August 2010, he wrote a weekly column for TNA's website. Uh... <laughs> there we are. October 2010, Foley defeated Ric Flair in a last man standing match, which turned out to be Foley's last match in TNA. Mm-hmm. There we go. Oh. Thinking about that run in, in 2009, like, he wins a world title. Three years later, they want me to fight Dean Ambrose at SummerSlam. But then WWE's doctor said, like, we cannot legally ensure you to wrestle. Your body's in that bad of shape. And three years later, he's winning world titles. See, see if you listened to our show last week on uh, Best and Worst TNA World Champions, this line that I found on uh, this particular point in his TNA run will really amuse or 
Team you, Scott McLeod. Uh, this is in 2010, so on the two, March 15, 2010 edition of Impact, Eric Bischoff announced that he would be shaving Foley bald as a punishment for trying to help Jeff Jarrett in a handicap match the previous week. At first, Foley was seemingly going with the plan, but at the last second, he shoved Mr. Sorko down Bischoff's throat, put him in the barber chair, and shaved him bald. On the following Impact, Foley lost to Jarrett in a no disqualification career versus career match set up by Bischoff, forcing Foley to KFEB leave TNA. For fuck's sake, I mean, also like, oh, how am I going to get back at you? I'm going to shave your head, like, you could just fire him, because you think, could you put him in a match where he got fired because he lost a week later, so why not just save yourself the aggro and just fire him on the spot? You have the authority to do that, Eric. I'd say, oh, I don't even know what to say, this is a weird time for, for TNA and Foley is unfortunately right in the midst of it, I mean, also, Ivan Taney gave us, you know, his fourth and easily probably his worst book, you know, Countdown to Lockdown. Oh, Jesus. But, uh, as Andy summed it up perfectly, he knew he was there and that was it. That kind of sums up his Taney run. <laughs> uh, from then until now, he's made various returns to WWE, you know. <laughs> One great example, Andy was in the late 2012. Uh, where he randomly got in a feud with CM Punk when CM Punk was the world champion, which led Damn. to the uh, a match that was going to happen at Survivor Series of Team Punk versus Team Foley. Oh, I, uh, I can't remember that. I, I was watching during that time. I still can't remember that. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's mad that I remember stuff from the action there, but I can't remember what happened like nearly 10 years ago. I what happened then? I, 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 can't, I can't actually recall it, that, that at all. It was stupid because I think what Foley was going for, they started it before Hell, the Hell in a Cell match with Ryback where Punk was going on about how long he'd been champion or been a champion for X amount of days and everything. That was his you know, big long reign over 400 days that he was on at the time. And Foley came in and said, like, I was WWE champion three times and like like combined that belly added up to like 30 or so days. Like It's not about how long you are as champion, it's what you do as champion. Like, you can be a legend or a statistic, and Punk. He's basically saying, like, oh, Punk, you're going about being the champion the wrong way because Punk was maybe a heel at the time. Yeah. And so, and so they set up the Survivor Series match where Foley reveals, like, I'm not actually wrestling in the match because uh, Punk was going to wrestle with his team, uh, and reveals that his team captain is actually Ryback, who Punk was feuding with, and that was maybe a big thing for Ryback and everything. And then randomly, a couple weeks later, I think it was on a UK Raw where Vince basically bullies then GM Vicky Guerrero into making. Uh, uh, Cena v Punk versus Ryback in the triple threat with the Shield obviously debut at, at the show. Oh yeah! He, he basically, once I was like, "Why is you, why have you not booked the WWE champion to defend his tail at Survivor Series when he's the one behind the scenes booking it?" In the yeah, first place? I never remember that because it was like they'd done it and it was just like nobody really cared. They didn't want to see a Team Punk versus yeah. Team Foley sort of thing. And it was like let's get a weak thing, and then WWE was like, "Nah, it's not working. Let's just do it because." And then. And then, like, Ziggler gets me the de- head of, like, Punk's team instead. But then, that, there's still more two weeks left to build to the show. And, like, Ziggler has no f- issue with Foley. So, team F- Ziggler v. Team Foley makes no sense. Then, Ryback had he taken out, Punk got taken out. Miz left, his team turned face, joined Foley's team. Cody Rhodes, I think, got injured a week before the show because he, <laughs> he landed wrong when he got up on a back body drop. <laughs> and, like, I remember... Because uh, obviously Ziggler was technically still managed by Vicky at the time. 
Uh, and it's weird how I still remember this because it was not a good time. Uh, when, uh, when she's making the triple threat, when, the, when she's put Rye back in, before she says Cena, she goes to say Ziggler, and Vince just says to her, if you say Dolph Ziggler, I will fire you on the spot. And I think there may be some truth to that because Vince still didn't consider Dolph getting the world title a push because that's how little he thinks of him. I mean, I mean, it would be... It. He was Santa that year when Santa got run over by Alberto Del Rio. Oh yes, when John Cena saved Christmas. Uh, what was it, what was interesting at that point in time was uh, he was originally meant to be the debut feud for Dean Ambrose that year because Dean Ambrose did oh, this whole yeah. bunch of things. Was the kind of seed the feud that was meant to happen at SummerSlam, but they couldn't medically clear fully for it. So, there's that whole thing where it was like there's the recording of uh, Dean Ambrose confronting him around the WrestleMania time, I want to say. Yeah. And it was, yeah, and then it just never went anywhere. Yeah, he was going to blame, because Moxley being CZW, I think he was going to blame Foley for inspiring people like Kimmy to get into the hardcore style and ruining people's lives and everything. Foley said he was having doubts about the feud anyway before it got cancelled because uh, to get to him on Twitter, uh, Ambrose made some comments about uh, Noel which Foley thought were a bit over the line. But also, it's funny, I just mentioned, like, the feud didn't happen because Foley couldn't be legally insured to wrestle. And yet, three months later, they hit him with a car. Because you can't wrestle. You can still be hit by a car. Technically, you're technically not having a wrestling match with a car, so it's okay. Please don't sue us. So, um, other highlights of his career in this last particular run, he... um, what did he do? He um, appeared as a good love on the 1000th episode of Raw, Dancing with Brodus Clay. <laughs> uh, he, oh, he gave uh, Dean Ambrose his baseball bat with the barbed wire ahead of WrestleMania 32 when Ambrose faced Brock Lesnar and Ambrose did not use said barbed wire baseball bat. Uh, he, later, he did appear at that WrestleMania as well, along with Shawn Michaels and Stone Gold, to take on the Hall of Fame group, the League of Nations. Uh, t- 2006, of course, he was the Raw general manager for a pretty much good part of that year. Um, and let's not forget in 2005, where he was the guest commissioner uh, for ICW Fear and Loathing mm. at, S- at the SECC where he has main involvements in the show where putting Viper in the triple threat match for the women's title, which he would win, and, of course, preventing Riddle Lightning from getting involved in the main event, uh, and Grado beat Drew for the world title, and he would then give Grado his flannel shirt. Happy endings all round. Yeah, and then wasn't he meant to do it the next year? But then he sent Finn Balor instead... Because uh, like, Survivor, Survivor Series was the same night and he was the Raw GM and it was obviously Raw vs SmackDown you couldn't have the Raw GM not there for Raw vs SmackDown yeah because uh, I remember he still appeared via video screen like he added Kenny Williams to the uh, the Stairway to Heaven match <sighs> a lot of matches with UG title oh, and just Kenny Williams Foley was over his, oh. <laughs> here in Long Island born Mick Foley saying the words the bollocks Kenny Williams <laughs> Ah, uh, that was when Kenny Williams was over. Oh, what a time that was! You know, Kenny Williams was over in 2016. To me, was over in the pandemic world of 2021. Oh, jeez, you know, 
And what? What is I'm surprised he remembered. I'm surprised he remembered who Kelly Williams was because I think Ross mentioned him as like the work one of his choices for worst authority figure uh, when we did that show because like he was just basically the uh, whipping boy for Stephanie McMahon at that time where he was forgetting lines yet he was having to write stuff down to remember his promos and then he gets fired in a way that you think eventually he's going to come back and give them these Triple H and Stephanie to come up and nope next thing we see him I think it's like Hell in a Cell 2018 when he's a guest ref again they love ah, him making yes. a guest ref don't they Yes, I think, he's got the rec- I think he's got the record for guest referee appearance. I think he's, uh, his last appearance that I can remember was when he unveiled the 24-7 championship. No, I think and, he came back a few months later and he got attacked by the Fiends, didn't he? Yes. So, I, know, I always remember that when he came out and he <laughs> introduced that title in the Simpsons uh, Irish group. was like, have, uh, Mc- have Terry Funk killed. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's... A lot of Mick Foley's career in the wrestling ring to go through, but he had a lot of uh, great successes outside the ring. As we've mentioned, he's a best-selling multiple-time uh, New York Times author for his various autobiographies. Uh, and Andy, you mentioned before the show, too, as he had a, a spell as a stand-up comedian. He did. Uh, I managed to see one of his uh, shows in uh, York in England, and uh, I managed to meet him afterwards. And he see it was really funny, but uh, his jokes weren't really that great. It was more the just him talking about like wrestling story, and I think it's popular now. I think it was just kind of before the sort of an audience with, and it was definitely way before Inside the Ropes. But it was just like he was on stage and he would just talk about wrestling stuff and like these stories, and and it was just that was what the more interesting part was. He he was sort of doing that before anyone else was, but then he would just throw in these like really cringy dad jokes and I was like no just go back to the stories that's all we want to know and uh, I met him afterwards and again it was like what do you say to someone like who's probably been asked everything because he was basically before he was like don't ask me anything to do with Hell in a Cell because I've been asked everything and I'm just sick of I'm sick of um, listening to it and someone in the audience tried to ask him about Hell in a Cell and he played Kurt Hangel's music and the guy just basically got upset and ran out the building <laughs> <laughs> It was really, really sad. But no, it was. Uh, no, I had the pleasure to meet. It was bit, He's really like he's quite tall. He's taller than you, you, you'd think. And I'm like a tall guy. I'm like six two, and he was like towering over me. And I was like, Jesus Christ! I thought he was going to eat me. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but no, the stand-ups definitely. Uh, like I said, I think now it's like if it's an an, an audience, if it's inside the ropes, uh, with Mick Foley, that's probably what. This, what you would have got with the stand-up minus the jokes so it'd be a much better experience he's their go-to guy inside the ropes he obviously came over at the last minute when the Undertaker stuff kind of yeah. fell flat there so fair play you know, and he's got a lot of great stories uh, as well and uh, obviously because he's wrote how many books has he wrote now is it like four or five or oh, and, he's written like in terms in terms of all about everything he wrote Have a Nice Day fully is good it won't really call the hardcore diaries. I don't know if it's more about it. It's just a random collection yeah. of stories. And then counting a lot, as I mentioned, kind of more he's uh, focused on TNA and that. And then I think he's written a bunch of like kids' book. Like he wrote one because Miz mentioned it a lot on TV, where about the about the Miz like portraying Miz as a spoiled child in a like Christmas book that he randomly the most, wrote. A most miserable Christmas it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, 
He's got he's got five he's got five memoirs. Uh, the four Scott mentioned, and there's one from 2017. Saint Mick, my journey from hardcore legend to Santa's jolly elf. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like I think he was in a was he not in a documentary talking about his love of Christmas and everything and how he used to dress oh, yeah. up Santa all the time. When I saw him in uh, for the stand up, I'm sure it was summer and he came out with Christmas gear on. <laughs> and I was like, right, this guy is that. Is that Holy Foley you're talking about, Scott? No, I'm pretty sure there's, there's something else out there where he talked about Santa, but it's probably covering there. But oh, Holy Foley is one of these. Aye, aye, aye. I would, I would yeah. never watch fucking Holy Foley. I remember when they put the trailer <laughs> out for it on the network, and I'm like, that looks like a crock of shit. Also, he also oh. sh- he also shows up, if I'm correctly remembering it, as a referee in the uh, wrestling film Peanut Butter Falcon. He does. He does indeed. <laughs> he has a really... <laughs> He has a really, really random cameo in Fairty Rock. Really? Yeah, as as mankind. He also <laughs> showed up in Boy Meets World and he gives advice to someone, like really serious advice as he's dressed up as mankind. Uh, I just remember that Fairty Rock thing. I'm just trying to remember what exactly... Why exactly was he in Fairty Rock again? <laughs> For Is no fucking reason that I can think of. He thought it was the Rock and Sock connection. I'm sure, he's one of, I'm sure he turns out like he's a sexual partner for one of the lassies in it. Wow. <laughs> Clearly, whoever was writing 30 Rock did not know who Mick Foley is. It was Alec Baldwin's stunt double. Uh, I've just found a thing there. Uh, he showed, uh, again, I'm reading this from online for the people listening at home. He shows up in the show. He's in a random trailer. It's just like a random trailer for something. It's like the trailer featured Emma Stone, Andy Samberg, Liam Neeson, Amy Adams, Vince Vaughn. Kirsten Bell, Nick Cannon, John Krasinski, uh, uh, what's her name, Jenna Maroney, who's the character from it, uh, Matthew McConaughey, Ian McKellen, uh, Plinko from Price is Right, an inflatable arm-waving tube man, the 1995 Quebec something, R2-D2, the flight attendant that went crazy, and none other than Mankind. He later showed, he showed up later on the show as Mankind where Jenna Maroney was trying to find Fred outside of Tina Fey's Liz Lemon character. He showed up in Jenna's dressing room and introduced the 30 Rock audience to Mr. Sock. <laughs> wow. You can find this on YouTube. So it's, it's quite a funny... I think that's what I'm going to do after this finishes. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> uh, an argument broke out over who should be focusing on the, on the group and with everybody saying me over again until Mankind stood up and yelled, you're all using the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think fully. Like I remember when it was an NXT was going to come in and play the Undertaker. It was a nice thing for me to do. But I remember also being upset not getting to like hear the Undertaker talk, like because this is before like the last Friday series where Taker was doing more and more like a character interviews, like appearing on fucking hot ones for Christ's sake. Uh, but I think fully through stand up, his books and various things like Inside the Ropes, I think fully is one of the guys who's like. He's kind of tapped out in terms of like stuff you've never heard before. Like trying to interview him now would be a case of like trying to think what the fuck has Mick Foley not been asked already that I can ask him. <laughs> to ask him about his role in Fetty Rock. I, I, I didn't even remember that actually happened. Partly it was his favourite show on TV at the time. And that's, you get asked to do it. There's no idea. It's, 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 it's the most random thing ever. It's like blah, 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 mankind. What? <laughs> Uh, anywho, I think fair to rock mentions. That's a perfect way to end this look <laughs> back at the grand career 
of Mick Foley from Kiptish Jack to Mankind to Dude Love to cameo appearance with Liz Lemon. He's done it all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, the Peanut Butter Falcon. Interesting film. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll hear them. Um, maybe we can petition to get David Campbell to review that in first time films. <laughs> I'm going to actually do that once, I, once we finish recording. I'm going to message David and ask him, can you please review the Peanut Butter Falcon and see if he tells me the bolt. <laughs> I'm still waiting for him to do Highlander. Like, that is Scottish national treasure film right there. <laughs> I, I'm still waiting for him to review Hot Rod. He claims he knows he's in it, but does he really? Give, give me a name, a Campbell. Film. Give me a name. <laughs> Hot Rod is risking. Well, I'm pretty sure someone wears a Stone Cold T-shirt and that, and a Hulk Hogan T-shirt, wrestling related. Like, I think when we see, when we all are able to meet outside after COVID, everybody in the pod just gets together to recreate that scene where everybody's walking and singing "You're the Voice" when, before it all turns into a riot. Yeah, but yeah, Mick Foley, all in here. <laughs> I hope you have enjoyed this show. If you have enjoyed this, the first time you listen to us, please subscribe to us. We've got a massive back catalogue. We've got loads of shows. We've got all these feature shows. We've got ESSR Central. It's our huge show. Saturday Draft Live, which is our fantasy wrestling uh, uh, league. Good fun doing that. Uh, East meets West, where we review New Japan Pro Wrestling. So much content on that back catalogue and so much coming up. Uh, our next week's show, we're going to be talking about the best and worst finishers of the modern era. Should be an interesting one. Uh, followed by a review of the 1996 King of the Ring. Not the 1998 King of the Ring, which we've talked about a lot on the show, and the 1996 one. So lots coming up on the podcast there. We've got loads coming up on YouTube. Quiz Showdown's always on there. Uh, Jack Graham, some reason, the champion. No idea how Jack's managed to win two Quiz Showdowns in a row, but hey-ho. Well, uh, it may not be may not be for much longer because it's coming back in July and I am in the hosting chair and we'll see how he gets through a quiz that's actually about wrestling and not your daft singing or whatever or who in the podcast once wrote an article about I don't know the five worst Jeff Jarrett matches which I might write <laughs> as long as you don't put a good housekeeper on that to you, that list I'll be, <laughs> I'll, I'll be fine uh, so like loads of stuff coming up on loads of other stuff you know you can keep up with it on a on our social media feeds, you know, at Suplex Retweet, we're all on there. Uh, from myself, Stephen Wills, I'd like to thank my panel with a lot of good fun talking about mixed career. Uh, you might hear us reviewing 30 Rock in a couple of months. <laughs> uh, Andy Mitchell, thanks, Andy. No problem. Like you said, there's like so much we could have talked about with uh, McFoy's career. is like, amazing. I just want to quickly throw in there, watch Dude Love versus Stone Cold Over the Edge 98, one of the greatest matches oh, ever. I- very underrated feud. Very underrated feud. He has a uh, this dude love actually. Yeah. Didn't get a chance in that. And uh, to Scott, thanks, Scott. Thank you very much for everybody. Thank you for having me. And have a nice day. <laughs> uh, from us here at the podcast, we will see you next time. Cheers, bye. Bye, bang.